Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to our uh, Sunday morning Bible study. Uh, we are making our way, of course, through the book of First Peter, and we have come to chapter 3. Now, the title of our lesson this morning is Christian Marriage, God's Perspective. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that Peter is taking us through some real-world examples of Christian uh, behavior. We looked at Christian citizenship uh, we looked at Christian employment, and then starting uh, three weeks ago, we began to look at Christian marriage. And in doing so, we looked first at the role of the wife. Last week, we looked at the role of the husband. And today, we'll look at marriage from God's perspective. And the reason for this is that, as any Christian should know, in marriage, there's really three actors or three players or three participants, if you will. There's, of course, the husband and the wife. But God always plays a part. And so it just wouldn't be fitting if we looked at marriage without stopping and looking at God's role in marriage or looking at it from His perspective. Now, the first thing I want to say is this. God's view of marriage is higher and more beautiful and stronger and more glorious than you or I could ever imagine. In fact, I'm not even sure our culture has the capacity to to really understand it. Now, let's be honest. Some cultures and civilizations have respected marriage more than others. Some of them have a, a very high view of marriage. Some cultures have a very low view. Some cultures like our own have such a low view of marriage that, to be honest, some of the things that I'm going to say here today will almost sound uh, ludicrous to those in our culture. But whether you're looking at a culture that has a high uh, view of marriage or whether you're looking at a culture that has a low view of marriage, the fact is there's never been a culture in history uh, whose view of marriage is high enough. In fact, the difference between God's view of marriage and our view of marriage as human beings um, is, is, is just a, a huge gulf. I want to give you an example of that this morning, and I want to take it uh, directly out of, of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to read a, a, a little story to you from Matthew 19. So Jesus has been teaching uh, throughout Judea and Galilee, and, and, and large crowds are following him, wanting to uh, hear what he has to say, hanging on his every word. And a group of Pharisees came to him, and they wanted to test him. And so, uh, beginning in verses 1 through, it says this, They ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? This is his reply. Haven't you read, Jesus said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said, Moses permitted or allowed you to do that because your hearts were hard. But that's not the way it was intended from the beginning. I tell you, and this is Jesus' statement on marriage, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife 
except for marital unfaithfulness. Not for any reason, but only one reason he gives. And marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, now these are the followers of Jesus. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, in other words, if if God's view of marriage is one woman, one man, united for life, and there's virtually no reason for them to get a divorce, the disciples says it's better for us not to get married. Now that, has I've always found that story pretty shocking. Jesus gives this magnificent view of marriage, this, this, what God intended with His original design. And the disciples hear that and say, well, it's better if you're not even to get married. In other words, the idea of going into a marriage that you can't get out of, to them, that didn't seem like good news at all. In fact, His view of marriage was so different from theirs, they could not imagine that, imagine that being a good uh, thing. Now, what about us? The latest statistics that I could find say this. 40% of all first marriages in America end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. And 73% of third marriages end in divorce. Now, the good news overall, some of you may have heard over time that 50% of marriages uh, end in divorce, but the fact is that's actually gone down. That's the good news. The bad news is the reason that it's gone down is that less and less people are actually getting married. In fact, our culture has kind of sided with the disciples and said, well, I guess it's better not to even get married. And most people have just resolved to live together. So what are we doing wrong? Why do we have such a low view of marriage? Why why are our divorce rates so high? Why do so many marriages fail? What are we doing wrong? Well, one reason, as we'll see as we go through the lesson, is we don't hold marriage in as high of a regard as we should. And, And we'll see that from Scripture. But from a very practical standpoint, one of the reasons that marriages run into trouble it's because people go into a marriage believing in a myth. They go into marriage believing something that's not true. And, and, and this is what I call the right person myth. And we all have been there, right? We, we grow up and we feel like one day I'm going to meet and marry the right person. And when I meet the right person, you, marriage is just going to work. Everything, we're not going to really have to work at it. We're not going to have any troubles. Everything will just work out because we are so compatible with one another. And eventually that happens, right? We, we, we're going through life and then one day we look across the aisle or we look across the, the, the cubicle or we look across the gym or whatever the case may be and there they are. That person that everything just clicks with. And all of a sudden, the days are sunnier, the the skies are bluer, the flowers smell better, the music that was on the radio now just takes on a a whole different meaning. Uh, We are in love. And when that happens, well, nobody has ever loved like these two people, right? They have found the right one. And they just want to spend the rest of their lives together. They can't wait to see one another. They think about each other all the time. They just enjoy spending time together. And so they decide, we're going to get married and we're going to live together forever. And so that's what they they do. But as special as they think their relationship is, guess what? 
It's not. It's the same relationship path that hundreds of millions, if not billions of people have walked down throughout history. The fact is, life happens. You begin to, 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 you get married, you live with someone, and all of a sudden you begin to see all their faults that you didn't see before. Uh, there's just the mundane things. The house has to be cleaned. You have to go to work. Uh, somebody has to cook the meals. It's just the kids come along, and all of a sudden that chemistry that used to be there, that chemistry that once was so great, you just can't find it, uh, you're finding it hard to recapture or, or it's completely gone. But here's the thing. You got to remember these two people still believe in that myth. They still believe that there's a right person out there for them. And you can pretty much guess what happens, right? One day he's at work and he looks across a cubicle and there she is. And all of a sudden, those feelings the, uh, the, that he hadn't felt in a long time, they're back. All of a sudden, the sun's brighter, the grass is greener, the music's got that meaning again. He's in love. And he has a realization, oh, I know the mistake I made. I married the wrong person. This is the right one because she makes me feel that way. Or she's at the gym and, and guess who she meets? It's the right man. He, again, he makes the sun brighter, the music sweeter, and she thinks, boy, I married the wrong person. This is the right one. So guess what? They divorce and remarry. And the chances of that second marriage ending in divorce is even greater than the first one. Because life happens and the chemistry wanes and fades, and then here we go all over again. Now, I say all this because I want you to understand that we are no different than those early disciples. We come to any study of marriage like we are today, and we're encumbered by our own sin. We're encumbered by our own selfishness. We've, we're encumbered with cultural bondage that we, that we grow up in, and it makes it almost impossible to feel the wonder of God's purpose for marriage between a man and a woman. Almost impossible but not for those who have the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. As Christians, you and I should want to have the type of marriage that God wants us to have. We should desire to live out and walk out the type of marriage that God wants for us. But in order to do that, it is imperative, absolutely imperative, that we not believe myths, but that we believe the truth, that we see marriage from God's perspective. So there's two things that I want to teach you this morning about marriage. The most foundational thing that we're going to see about marriage from the Bible is that marriage is the doing of God. The most ultimate thing that we're going to see about marriage today from the Bible is that marriage is the display of God. Now, let's look at both of these separately. First of all, marriage is the doing of God. In Genesis 2.18, it says, The Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, what I want you to see here from this verse is that this is God's idea. Adam didn't come to God and say, God, you know, 
I, I need a helper. Can you make me a woman? Adam had never seen a woman. Adam had no idea what a, what a woman was. He had no idea uh, of that, that anything other than him could even exist. You see, you, you cannot miss that. God himself came up with the idea of creating a helpmate. God himself create, came up with the idea of creating another creation perfectly suited for the man, and that is a woman to be his uh, wife. In Genesis 2.20, it says, The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. You know, today we go to weddings, and, and the fathers will always walk their daughters down the aisle and give them away. We see God was the first father to give away the bride. You see, he made her. He created her. She belonged to him. He was the creator. She was the creation. But he took her and he gave her to uh, Adam. And he gave her to her in this to Adam in this relationship called a marriage, which is unlike any other relationship in the world. Verse 24 of Genesis 2, Therefore, the writer says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, it is God in each and every marriage. It is God who is performing this union that the Scripture refers to as becoming one flesh. So what we see early in the book of Genesis is that God creates, God institutes, and God designs marriage between the first man and the first woman. Now, we would all agree with that, but we might say, well, you know, what has that got to do with my marriage? What has that got to do with your marriage? Well, according to Scripture, God's doing continues to be at work in every single marriage today. Mark 10, 6-8, this is Jesus talking. He says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay. Now, he's quoting Genesis. Now, he adds his commentary. So then, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Listen, Jesus is not talking here about Adam and Eve's marriage. He's talking about my marriage. He's talking about your marriage. He's talking about every single marriage that has ever occurred on this planet. God is the one that is joining those two people together. You see, this is the clearest statement in the Bible that every single marriage is God's doing. You see, when a marriage occurs, it's not the man and the woman who are the main actors. It's not the pastor. It's not the parents. It's not the, the groomsmen's or the bridesmaids. It's God. God is there at that wedding. God is performing this, this union between the two. Now, the world doesn't know this. That's one of the reasons why marriage is treated so casually. But unfortunately, Christians often act like they don't know this, which is the, one of the reasons that marriage in the church is not seen as the incredible wonder that it really is. So this is the first thing that we learn about marriage. The most foundational thing that we learn about marriage is that it is God's doing. It was His design and creation. He gave away the first bride. He spoke the design of marriage into existence. And this one flesh union is established by God Himself in each and every marriage that occurs. So that's the first thing. The second thing 
is marriage is the display of God. The most ultimate thing that we can say about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. There's something about marriage that can display God's glory in a way that something else can't. You know, the moon and the stars, the the universe displays His, His glory. The birth of a child displays His glory. A sunset displays His glory. But our marriages display His glory in a certain way that none of those other things uh, can. We, we start to learn about this in Ephesians 5.31. Paul is writing and he says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Once again, he's quoting from Genesis 2. Now what I want you to see is these words, joined and one flesh, they point to something incredibly deep and incredibly permanent. Now, that's only inferred there. But what these words are pointing to is marriage as a sacred covenant. It's not just a relationship. It's not just a, uh, that two people come together for a time. No, it, there, is a, there is a joining of flesh. There is a, a, a single union that occurs that the Bible talks about as a sacred covenant. Now, Paul makes this explicit in verse 32 of Ephesians 5. He says this, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage puts on display Christ's covenant commitment to His church. The moon and the stars can't do that. The birth of a child can't do that. A sunset can't do that. Only a marriage between a man and a woman can do that. You see, this is the highest meaning of marriage. This is the ultimate purpose of marriage. This is why marriage exists. If you are married, this is why you are married. This is the ultimate purpose of your marriage. See, this is why staying married is not about staying in love. Staying married is about keeping covenant. Let me say that again. That might be the most important statement that comes out of this lesson. Staying married is never about staying in love. It's always about keeping a covenant. You see, it's the same covenant that Jesus made with His bride, the church. Christ will never leave His bride. Never. There will be times when when we are backslidden. There may be times where there's a distance between us, but Christ always keeps His covenant, and He will keep it forever. Now, let's get practical. You're in a marriage, you're married to your, to your wife, you're married to your husband, and, and, and you want to walk this out. You want to keep this covenant. How do we do that? How do we keep covenant? We see Christ's covenant with His church is created by grace, and it's sustained by grace. You see, our marriages, therefore, are meant to showcase grace. And what we do is we do that by taking the experience of grace vertically with God, and then we exchange that grace horizontally with our spouse, or we walk it out within our marriage. You see, a husband and wife live hour by hour in dependence on God's grace. We receive His forgiveness. We receive His love. We receive His mercy. And then we turn that around and we give that forgiveness. We give that love. We give that mercy uh, to our, our spouse. We apply those graces to one another. 
Colossians 3, 12-13 says this, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive one another. You see, as the Lord has forgiven you, you forgive your spouse. As the Lord bears with you, you bear with your spouse. And by the way, this holds whether your spouse is a believer or an unbeliever. Practically, it works like this. God is glorified when two very different and very imperfect people forge a life of faithfulness in the furnace of marriage by relying on Jesus Christ. See, that glorifies God in a way that other things just cannot do it. When two selfish people come into a marriage and they they put their their own wants and their own desires and their own needs aside and and they seek to, to please their spouse and to please God and to meet their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, that's as good as it gets in marriage. You see, the greatness of marriage is not in the institution itself. The greatness of marriage is the fact that it displays something unspeakably great, which is the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, that is the most ultimate purpose of marriage, your marriage and my marriage. But there is a second purpose as well, and that is to produce godly children. Malachi chapter 2, 13 through 16 says, Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why did He make them one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. Now listen, here's a really good question. What does marriage have to do with producing godly children? You see, we all know that you don't have to be married to produce children. It's just a physical act. A man and woman doesn't have to be married. What does marriage have to do with producing godly children? What we're going to see here is they are intrinsically connected. And here's how. In order to raise godly children, the most fundamental thing that a mother and a father can do is show God to their children or put God on display for their children. You see, the fact is children will have years of exposure to their parents before they ever know anything about God. Think about it this way. A child lives in a world And they're exposed to this world for years and years before they ever know anything like that there's something called a universe, that there's something bigger than even this world. In this universe, they'll experience things like authority and justice and love and mercy. And they'll experience all of that before they ever meet the God of authority and love and justice and mercy. You see, children are are growing up in a home and They're absorbing from their dad his strength and his leadership and his protection. They're they're absorbing from their mother her care, her nurture, her warmth, her intimacy, 
from both, they're seeing things like love and kindness and justice and, and mercy. You see, all this is happening before that child knows anything about God, yet it is profoundly all about God. You see, therefore, the chief task of parents is this, to know God for who He is and His many attributes, and then to live in such a way in front of our children that we put God on display for them. You see, God's design is that children grow up watching their parents' marriage. Think about a think about a child that goes to church and they hear about God being a loving father and they say, "Oh, I can understand that because my father is loving." They 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 go to church and they hear a story where Jesus says, "Oh, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to to bring you under my wing like a like a mother hen does to her chicks." And they say, "Oh, I can understand that because my mother is like that." Or maybe they hear about this covenant relationship between Christ and His bride, the church, and they say, oh, I can understand that because I've seen my mom and dad act that way. You see, that's God's design. Children grow up seeing things about God before they're ever even exposed to God. And that covenant relationship that's being put on display by that mother and father is one of the most important things they can learn before they even know what the word covenants and relationships even mean. So it turns out the very deepest meaning of marriage, which is displaying that covenant love between Christ and His church, is also foundational to the other purpose of marriage, which is producing godly children. Now, I want to close this morning, and I want to talk a little bit about Divorce. Uh, as I've taught over the years, I invariably get questions about um, uh, divorce. And, and this morning we've looked at God's uh, perspective on marriage and I, and I felt like it, it, you know, it made sense as we closed to at least look at His perspective on uh, divorce. Malachi 2.16, I've put a couple of translations here, says this, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one that he should protect. The ESV says this, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. You see, it's pretty clear in the the Bible that God hates divorce. And I hope at this point we can see why. First of all, if the ultimate purpose of marriage is to put on display the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His bride, well, what does divorce do to that picture? Or if God wants parents to produce godly offspring and marriage between a man and a woman is the plan that He put in place to bring that about, what does divorce do to that plan? You see, God hates divorce not because He hates people, who gets divorced. He hates divorce because it does violence to the design of marriage and its purposes. But is it allowed? Is it allowed? Mark 10, 6-9. Before we get to that, I want you to see a few things that the Bible says about marriage. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Again, these are the words of Jesus. So they are no longer two, but they are one. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If you go through the Scripture, it's clear that God's beginning plan at the very beginning in Genesis was one woman, one man, united for life. You see, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter, they all taught that marriage was intended to be permanent. I'll give you a few of these. Mark 10, 11 through 12, this is Jesus. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Romans 7, 2-3, this is the Apostle Paul. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she was to marry another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she has married another man. 1 Corinthians seven ten through 13 again, the Apostle Paul. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, not I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, then let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. 1 Corinthians 7.27 Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. 1 Corinthians 7.39 A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. You see, the Bible is clear over and over again that marriage is intended to be permanent. One man, one woman for life. That is the plan that God intends. However, the Bible does give us scriptural grounds for two cases of divorce and remarriage. The first is if a Christian discovers that their spouse has been sexually unfaithful. In this case, the spouse who is innocent of the marital infidelity is permitted to divorce and remarry. Matthew five thirty-one to 32. We've already read this before. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness. So there Jesus gives us his one reason for allowing uh, divorce. The second case that we see in the New Testament is that of abandonment. If a Christian's unbelieving spouse leaves the Christian, then the Christian who has been divorced in this way is free to remarry. The former marriage is dissolved. This comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 10-15. I'll read this again. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So again, there's this idea of permanence. And it says this, If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But then Paul says this, But, if the unbeliever leaves, then let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound 
in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Now, so we give two grounds for divorce, as far as I can tell, in the New Testament. That is marital unfaithfulness and abandonment. Now, even with that said, that does not mean that God desires a divorce to occur, even in those instances. It certainly doesn't mean that you have to get a divorce. It doesn't mean that divorce is encouraged. The most that can be said is sexual immorality and abandonment are grounds or an allowance for divorce. But as a Christian, let me just say this. Rather than asking, are there grounds for divorce or are those grounds for divorce, we have the, we have the freedom, we have the liberty to ask other questions. For example, is this grounds for forgiveness? Is this grounds for restoration? There's a famous saying in the Bible, with God, nothing is impossible. See, God is capable of healing and renewing any marriage if we will just give Him the opportunity. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank You for Your Word. And as we conclude this week our our study in marriage by looking at Your perspective, God, help us to see marriage in a way that we've never seen it before. Help us to understand our marriage as much more than just two selfish people trying to make a go of it. Help us see that God has a plan for our marriage that's higher and more noble and more glorious than anything we could ever imagine. We may not understand it. We may not know until we get to heaven what God was doing, what God was showing others. But God, while we're here, help us trust Your Word and believe it just because you said it. Help us to be the husbands and wives that you want us to be. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.